0: And so I grew up, you know, calling him uncle, but also, you know, it's a it's a very confusing feeling, Kate, because you're calling him uncle. The rules is for us to laugh when he laughs, to cry when he cried. We always had to be in our best manners when he showed up. And here is an uncle, but one that
1: we feared. Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency, and on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do, and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest is my friend Zainab Salbi. She is a celebrated humanitarian, author, and journalist who founded and ran Women for Women International. She's also the creator and host of several shows, including Me Too, Now What, and Through Her Eyes with Zainab Salbi. Zainab is currently the host of Redefined Podcasts and Chief Awareness Officer at Fine Center and the co-founder of Daughters for Earth. There is literally nothing my sister cannot do, and I am thrilled to welcome her onto the show. Zeynep, my darling love, welcome to the show. It's so good to see you. It's
0: great seeing you, Kate. What a pleasure to be in in here and in conversation with you. I'm so excited.
1: Well, we've known each other a very long time. We've had adventures uh, all over the world. We've been at the World Economic Forum in Davos. We've been in Rwanda. We've been in China. We've Literally, and seen each other all over the world in some crazy places. And I don't know whether you know this, but I literally think that you are one of the most beautiful women I know, inside and out. You just radiate sunshine. And I kind of want to be like you when I grow up, if I may. (laughs) Well,
0: I want to be like you, my dear, when I grow up, (laughs) because you... you have a sense of freedom about you when I first met you, and that was very, very inspiring. And the way you carried always yourself was a full womanhood, something that I had to learn to come over, uh, over the year, something I had to learn to look at myself as beautiful or to carry myself as beautiful. And you had it. Naturally, so it's very inspiring for me to see you and witness you, and and to see you here today after so many years of not seeing each other. Here we are. Oh, Thank no. you.
1: Yes, dreaded, dreaded pandemic. Talking of beauty, one thing you said to me the other day was that it's very dangerous in the Muslim world to be beautiful, and I am gazing at a actually a beautiful photograph of you of you with Saddam Hussein who I understand your father was his pilot, and he had his hands on your shoulders. What was going through your mind at that moment?
0: Well, it is dangerous to be beautiful how I grew up in Iraq. I don't know about the entire Muslim world, but definitely how I grew up, because Saddam, and it was a known factor that he, when he liked a woman... He had that woman. He raped that woman. And it doesn't matter if she was married or not, if she was a friend or not. And it wasn't only him. It was his brothers and his sons and his close surroundings. Now, you're talking about that photo. And, you know, it's a public record. I wrote a book about that, that I grew up calling Saddam uncle. My father was his personal pilot. He also, my father also was assigned as the head of civil aviation. And we were more than that, his social friends, if you may. My parents were had no political ambition. They were part of the elite of the society and he chose them, chose us because it was definitely a struggle of the family not wanting to be in relationship with a dictator. But um, when you're chosen, they, the dilemma my parents always talked about was you either accept and risk being taken over by the shadow of the dictator, or you refuse, and if you refuse, then you risk killing your family members and lives. And my parents have this very interesting moment of having to make that choice, whether to go into the relationship or reject it and the price that it both had. And so I grew up, you know, calling him uncle, but also, you know, it's a a very confusing feeling, uh, Kate, because... You're calling him uncle. The rules is for us to laugh when he laughs, to cry when he cried. We always had to be on our best manners when he showed up. And here is an uncle, but one that we feared. You know, if he got upset, we would see, I would see my parents, you know, shaking. You know, I... I would see my mom when we go home crying and sobbing and saying, I live in a birth cage. I live in a prison. Mm-hmm. The prison mm-hmm. is golden cage, but it's a prison nevertheless. And so it's there was that relationship and that's, that picture that you refer to is always like that. It's always, yes, hi, uncle. And it's mm-hmm. always, a fe- you know, it's like, I I hi, uncle, I like you and I'm afraid of you, you know? Yeah. And because there's an... Unpredictability about him.
1: Mm. And P.S. Please don't write me.
0: Right? You know, I mean, it's, it's it was hard for me to think that way because I was a child, and I really did look at him as my father's friend. Mm-hmm. Um, he did change my trajectory in life because because of him, I was sent to America uh, for an arranged marriage that my mom begged me to accept. Arranged marriage in that case did not mean I was forced to do it at all. It meant my mom was begging. Please accept, please accept and go to America and do whatever you want to do once you arrive to America. Just say yes. And it was more like seeing my mom, who I loved and adored, just crying and sobbing. And I mm-hmm. wanted to be a good daughter after doing some, you know, adventures with guys that I was trying to escape from Saddam. And I was like, OK, it all failed. So let me be a good daughter and listen to my mom. And, you know, that's how I came to America. And, and the arranged marriage was to an older guy who ended up being very violent and ended up raping me. And I ended up escaping from him after three months. But the point to take it back to Saddam, I was very mad at my mom for, for pushing me into that uh, story. And it took me nine years of not seeing my family because they were in Iraq and they were at the embargo and the sanctions in Iraq after the Kuwait invasion. It took me nine years when I saw my mom to understand that she did that to help me escape from his gazes. And the stories Mm -hmm. that she tells me as an adult woman today, oh my God, I would be livid if I saw him gaze at my daughter the way the moments my mom was telling me about. And frankly, the moment I do remember, and it's part of my trauma that I still work on. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... I didn't know I was in danger. I was in danger. I knew my mom was in danger. I knew my father was in danger. I knew all the women around us were in danger. I was also in danger from his sons. I just didn't know it was him as well until much later in life. And it's again, honestly a trauma that I still, between now and then it pops out and, it, and I still, it's a work in progress to heal myself from that. And in that regard, the beauty was dangerous. You know, and so I yes. went, I went, you know, a lifetime trying to what I call uglify myself, you know, uh, because it's sort of and focus much more on my voice and my activism and all yeah. of that. So I can like take away any attention from my physical beauty. And it was unfortunate because I I came to believe that I was ugly for the longest time until the more integrated I am in myself, the more I started working on my seeing my fullness and my fullness indeed, mm. even on the physical you know, superficial level, but it took me a long time to say, oh my God, it's beautiful. Um, but honestly, mm-hmm. I had no, I dismissed it and I denied it and I buried it and any allowance of seeing beauty
1: within. Mm. I think, you know, you and I are very, very similar. We both want to completely want to change the world for our sisters and women all over the world. And you've been an incredible warrior. You've had an incredible career. With First of all, studying Women for Women and then going on to be an incredible spokeswoman and warrior for women. And I have two quick questions for you. One is, when did you feel most vulnerable in your life? And the next question is, when was the most exhilarating moment of your life?
0: The most vulnerable moment. I mean, there are lots of vulnerable moments. I guess the one that comes to mind really quickly is really um, two years ago. When I was um, at the peak of my career, what I thought it was at the peak of my career, I had my show at Yahoo. I was a commentator on MSNBC. I was doing well. I was like, you know, doing it the whole thing. It's like, yay, you know, the career, the money, the the vacations, the clothes, the boyfriend, the whole thing. And I was rushed from that into the IC, into the ER, into um, in an ambulance, into the operating room, into the ICU. And I saw myself grabbing, grasping for what I believed at that moment is my last breath. And I was so vulnerable because there's nothing, um, it's a very raw place in that space between life and death. And I was almost embarrassed that first I couldn't do anything about it. You know, my strength and power and blah, blah, blah did not do much in here. I was embarrassed that I was grasping to stay alive. You know, you see, I always lived my life out of the belief that live every day as if it's your last day, which means live it fully, enjoy it fully, live your purpose fully. And then there I am with my last day and
1: (gasps) wanting to stay alive. Wow. So, you know, health is wealth. We know that if you don't have your health, you have absolutely nothing. And I believe you were diagnosed with what some people call Lyme's disease. I understand you have a different definition for it, but it's just absolutely crippling. And you found your way out of that and you have almost been reborn based on our conversation. I'm eager to get into that. What's been your, the pinnacle, like think about your life here. What has been that amazing moment for you? It's so interesting because that
0: moment, you know, I don't know how it changed or it didn't my trajectories in in my career, but it was a call from Oprah Winfrey, a phone call. I was having dinner with my cousin in Los Angeles and I get a call from Oprah and she said, I want you to come back. I had lunch with her to ask for her guidance and on a show that I was uh, doing for Arab women. And the call happened the day after, and she says, I want you to come back. I want to interview you for Super Soul Sunday, and then I'm going to get out of my chair, and I will give you my chair. You sit in my chair, and you interview me for your show. Wow. And because she said, because you found your voice. She said every mm-hmm. now and then between now and then people come and say I want to be the new Oprah I want to be the new Oprah and I tell them go find your voice I'm only Oprah because I found my voice. Yeah. And yeah. she said but you found your voice so you mm-hmm. get to do that. You know, he's like and that was unbelievable because I mean I love her I admire her I'm grateful for her because she has supported my work at Women for Women by featuring me several times on the Oprah Winfrey show. And for, you know, this woman that I truly admire and look up to say, I'm going to give you my, your first, the first interview she has ever given the Arab and the Muslim world. So it's a historical interview and that I will do that. It was unbelievable. Now, you know, the reason I was like, it was the most unbelievable moment and exciting moment in my life because I was like in the street and I was like jumping after that. It was like in well, awe. Yeah. And, but, what? you know, and, 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 and it was amazing experience interviewing her and her interviewing me, of course. It didn't lead, I didn't become the Oprah for the Middle East as some media predicted and projected and all of these things. I didn't. It didn't necessarily change my career, actually. It, it, I had a different experience. It was really hard to make it in the Middle East. I had a lot of challenges and and mm, attacks and all mm. of these things, but on a personal level, that was, of all the moments in my life, that was the most honorable moment that really impacted me, even though
1: it didn't end up impacting
0: my career per se.
1: Mm, but I know you did go on to write a couple of books, uh, Between Two Worlds is one of the books that I absolutely love, recommend everybody read it. Truly inspiring. I mean, getting a call from Oprah, having lunch with Oprah. I mean, these are all huge moments, Zainab. huge moments. And of course, you deserve it. So interviewing her, did you have to do a lot of research? Like, how did you go about forming that? I mean, both of us, we've been on panels, we've done tons of interviews, we've done tons of media. How'd you go about prepping for that? Well, you know, here's my philosophy. And I kid you not, I
0: actually go to my heart. So mm. I meditate a lot. I mean, I, obviously I do research, you know. Obviously mm-hmm. I try to mm-hmm. read as much as possible and interview all of and 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 listen to as much as possible. But at the end of the day, I truly, truly go to my heart, and that whether that is meditating over a very long time and go into an absolute silence to figure out what comes out or whether I go for a walk in in nature Mm. and an absolute Mm. silence and like try not to think and see what surface up. And with Mm. Oprah, particularly, and I do that for every interview, by the way, I I really do Mm. need because Mm. and then whatever comes up, that is the magic, You know, Mm -hmm. that usually if the magic of that interview. It's Mm -hmm. it's in that Mm -hmm. silence uh, moment. And with Oprah, I was like, how do I interview the the goddess, basically, you know, of of TV, of of many things, of spirituality and all of that. And what came out to me is I started her interview with uh, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of God, the most merciful, the most uh, gracious. And it was to honor all the women in in the Muslim world and the Arab world who do admire her and respect her and whose voices still are yet to be fully heard and to fully celebrated it. and it was to honor mm-hmm. my sisters and and my tradition the tradition that I grew up with and but that came from my heart you know producers mm-hmm. or research or whatever can never uh, give you that advice and and mm-hmm. I do that the same thing so I always say research study go to your heart and then at the end of the day just, be just be Mm.
1: so talking of your arab and muslim sisters as you know i'm pretty obsessed with bringing the body agency to the middle east and i feel there is a great opportunity to provide access to health products and services within that culture as women we all operate the same way we have the same bodies and we have the same needs, we function in the same way, we're programmed to have babies, we're programmed to have sex. And you and I were having a conversation the other day, and we were talking about sexuality in Islam and how it works, and you were explaining that you actually grew up with a very liberal family that talked about these things. But we know that a lot of families are completely closed down, and and often in the Muslim culture and Islam, You don't get to talk about this with your parents. In fact, it's completely taboo. What are your feelings about all of this? And what do you feel is the opportunity moving forward to reach women with the essentials? A few things. So, first, there isn't such a thing
0: as a Muslim culture. You know, Muslims come from many different countries, and each country has its own culture. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And the cultures really do differ from, you know, in, let's say, in Bangladesh, a predominantly Muslim country, women feel that it's absolutely okay to show your stomach in their saris, but it's absolutely impolite and improper Islamically to show your legs. And, And I am an Arab woman who lived in, who grew up in Iraq, and showing one's legs is considered no big deal, but showing one's stomach is seen as Oh my god that's the sexiest thing you can do and you cannot do that. So, you know, so first it's there's like every even within the Muslim world, every Muslim country has its own culture of cultural norms of what is allowed and what is not allowed within in in terms of women and their sexuality and their body. And then there's the the cultural the where the things that we can generalize, you know, is The virginity of women in Islamic culture, that the virginity of women is holy and is to be protected, and supposedly the virginity of men as well, except men are allowed to do all kinds of naughty Mm -hmm. things while Mm -hmm. women are punished if they are not virgins. And that is universal. I would comfortably say it's that protection of her virginity and her association between the virginity and her honor and the family's honor and the cultural honor and the nation's honor is very much going back to our vaginas, basically, you know, to put it in a summary (laughs) uh, thing. And so, so there's the schism between cultural norms, which is what I just talked about, one of them. So then there's a lot of restrictions because it becomes a girl is Grown up and raised with this, protect your vagina, basically protect your virginity. You know, uh, Chast- you know, it's like <laughs> a chastity, a chastity you know. belt. Exactly, yeah. like do that. <laughs> don't do that. Don't look. Don't see. Don't uh, don't wear this that, because it's all about you need to protect it until you get married. Because if you're God forbid, if anything happens and, the, and you're not a virgin in the day of your marriage, then it's a disaster for the family. On the other hand. And the religion itself, which is, I found fascinating considering the culture does not carry that, the religious philosophy actually is to celebrate sexuality and sex and mm-hmm. to say it is part of the joy of life and it is yeah. part of norm. I mean, like, to, it, this is a gift, you know, in, in other words, it's a God's gift for us to have this joy in our lives. So that is... Mm-hmm. You know, I I recently, later in life, as an adult women's rights activist who does see myself and a grow respect the, the tradition of Islam, right? Sat researching and start realizing actually there's a lot of sexual discussions about Islam way back. It's almost like there's a version of a Kama Sutra, also. And you can actually have a you a sexual satisfaction between a husband and a wife is a merit for divorce if you're not satisfied. So there's this history that is actually rich, but there is the presence, which is completely the opposite. You are to be... You know, a virgin, you are to be subservient sexually to your husband. You are to be an innocent one before you are married, but you are to satisfy sexually your husband when you are married, which is a schism and and different, the contradicting messages that uh, a young woman is given. Between you, have to be honorable, but you have to be very sexy. You know, when you're, hu- and so that confl- creates a lot of conflicts in societies, and and um and conflicts in couples, and conflicts I mean, in women and in men, of course as well. So there is there's a lot out there between the origin, the roots of the religion if you may and between how it mm. devolved into something that is very sad at the moment. We are in our dark hours in in the Muslim and as a religion generally. And and yet it is in in these dark hours that there is a struggle between the past and the old and the new and it's it's not in a good stage right now. It is just mm, that's the mm, summary. It is mm. not in a good phase.
1: Well, I I also, I mean, I'm talking also about general healthcare for women in the Arab world and in the Middle East. I mean, in in Iraq, I know you can't readily get a breast exam or a pap smear because, well, there's just not the medical providers, there's not the gynecologists, there's not the experts, there on the ground just through limited resources. But it's also uh, taboo, which really worries me. I mean, I've met with Many women who are activists for that part of the world, and they tell me about the lack of resources. And now, of course, with Afghanistan, all of us, we are absolutely terrified for what is going to happen with our sisters over there. I've recently seen you campaigning in, in D.C., the warrior as you are. Tell us about what's happening there and what our listeners can do. And, and also, what, what's going to happen to our girls there with the Taliban? I mean, it's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Well, before I go
0: there, you know, it's interesting because, as I told you, my mom is a biologist. So I, you know, class is a major issue in the Middle East, right? So mm-hmm. within the way mm-hmm. I grew up, or a lot of the middle class and the upper middle class in different Arab countries, let's say, do have access to the gynecologist and to the pap smear and all of these things, it is the vast majority of the population who are poor that really don't have access to that. So, and it is particularly applies to the religious, to the traditional communities, let's say, which is the vast majority of the population, nevertheless, mm-hmm. but that 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 doesn't apply to like go to a pap smear or or do your breast exam or you know there was a major campaign in Jordan about just examining your breast to avoid uh, to pre detect any cancer and that was a controversial campaign.
1: Oh my yeah. God, touching is the breast. This what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, touching the breast. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. And it's sort of so again, this is you know it is it's it's a rupture right now between the old guards, you know, the traditionalists and the religious uh, fanatics that really rose to power in the last 20 years, 30 years, uh, you know, but it wasn't like that before. And between the youth who are saying, this is not the way we want to live and this is not we yeah. uh, how we want to do. So there is this, this conflict. And you see this conflict again in Afghanistan. As a matter of fact, uh, there was a great article in the New Yorker the other day about the two Afghan women. And there's like the educated Afghan woman who the last 20 years did give, you know, she rose to power. She became the parliamentarian and the journalist and the singer and the businesswoman and the chief of staff and all of that. And these women are the ones that you and I meet in the the World Economic Forums and in New York City and in all the, you know, big gatherings of, of the world. And then there is the other Afghan women, and these are the poorest of the poor, and again, these are the majority of the women, and their realities are very, very different, and they see a lot more death in their families, and they see a lot more violence, and they see a lot more abuse, and a lot more poverty in, in their families, and so... Never the, so that's the story of Afghanistan. The truth is, is, is both mm-hmm. stories. I mean, a lot of Americans say, well, we helped Afghan women stand up and all that. And, and 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 a lot of Afghan women say, we were always strong. There wasn't a window in the last 20 years and we captured it and we rose to it. And there's a story also of the other Afghan woman who is poor and no one necessarily... You know, when soldiers, uh, when there was mass killing in their own villages and all of that, we did not pay that much attention to the poor women. Uh, And regardless right now in both and the poor and the middle class, um, what we are facing is a dark moment, not only in Afghanistan, I would dare to say really in the world, you know, and and, and, in the world and particularly from the U.S. perspective, I really do see it's a dark day from a U.S. perspective because it lost the moral ground. The U.S. lost the moral ground in which it stood on for so long that it's a it's, uh it was a country that stands for human rights and women's rights and democracy and freedom. And to do the withdrawals, not the withdrawal, I was okay with I am I am against any invasions because invasions of countries have often led to more destruction than anything else, to be honest. But it is how do we go about engaging with countries and nations? And when we withdraw, how do we withdraw responsibly so we don't hand it over to the Taliban who You know, Kate, you know, so many women I know in different countries that I worked in have been assassinated by fundamentalist groups in the last two decades, since the Arab Spring, in Iraq, in Libya, in Yemen, in Syria. And the Taliban have been assassinating women leaders in the last year, and they have wow. identified who are these women leaders to continue their assassination as we move forward. And so it is a very scary and a very sad experience and a betrayal, really a betrayal of how of our values and of our promise uh, yeah. to Afghan women. And-
1: Of course, they're raping and preventing schools and hospitals, and I mean, it's atrocious what's happening over there. Tell us quickly, I know that Women for Women would be an organization that you can donate to and help. What other organizations would you recommend people getting involved with?
0: Yeah, thank you for, I mean, it's, it's been an amazing, you know, as sad as it's the story of Afghan women, it's also been an amazing uh, story of sisterhood in the last month, yeah. where truly yeah. all women from all over the world came together, pulled a fund together. You know, some of us were friends. Some of us did not know each other. Some of us were rivalries with each other. And we're like, all best are off. Our sisters... Are in danger, and we are united in standing up for them. It was unbelievable experience. So there was vital voices. That is amazing uh, organization. Uh, mm-hmm. There is, of course, Women for Women. There is V-Day and uh, and and One Billion Rising. We are all together making as a march on September twenty fifth for Afghan women. Mm-hmm. It's called Rise for and with Afghan women. Where women from all over the world are gonna march in the streets to make sure that our sisters' mm-hmm. voice stays intact. And stays to be heard and not to be silent. It's just been on, un- and these are some of the group, There's Women for Afghan Women. There's, you know, there's a lot of wonderful organizations who really did come together and support uh, and do all what they know how to do to support uh, the voices of mm-hmm. Afghan women.
1: Mm, wonderful. So you and I have been through a little transformation over the last couple of years. It's funny how our paths have been almost identical. I wasn't born in Baghdad, but. I was born in a village in England. And actually what you and I kind of have in common is Saddam Hussein because my brother, who is a, a pilot, actually also was part of the crew that brought him down. So we wow. we, have, we have him both in our families in a way. Wow! But we've been through a transformation. You have gone deep into your soul and you have redefined yourself. You have transformed yourself and you are on a new mission. This is phase two. So uh, I know you are starting a a new podcast called Redefined. Tell us about Find Center. What was that journey you went through and what was the process that you used to get there?
0: Well, when I talked about the most vulnerable moment of my life, which is thinking that I'm gonna die and this is my last breath, and I talked about what came to mind in that moment, was not what I've accomplished or what I, if I got any acknowledgement or what's the best moment of my career, it was kindness. And it was, did I live my life in kindness to myself and to others? And did I live my life in love to myself and to others? And I promise you, Kate, up until that moment, I never thought about living in kindness or in love to myself, right? Mm. You know, to others, Mm. of course, you try your best, but to myself, I was like, ah, no time for that. I have so much to do. And the vulnerability of being ill for so many uh, months, I I stayed uh, ill for a year and a half, you know, and having to learn to breathe again and then to walk again and eventually to think again. That vulnerability led me to, because I was, you know, my tools were out. I no longer could speak or think or write. And so I meditated. And I meditated with earth and I meditated in trails and I just, just that's because that's the only thing I could do honestly, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: what mm-hmm. came clear in the process, what resurfaced in the process was an image of my heart having a hand and holding mine and telling me, don't leave me again. And mm-hmm. I tear up just thinking about that because it that even though I am someone with purpose you know, and someone who went about with a, a driven force to to help contribute to the world, I had abandoned my own heart and my own kindness and love to myself and did not even prioritize it or even paid attention to it. And, you know, over the time of healing, I call it, I have arrived to my heart center. You know, I don't call it, I came back mm-hmm. to my health. I arrived to my heart center mm-hmm. and it was so profound so beautiful and that I said, Wow, if I could have this profound connection to my own heart, and you know, and then as a result, to other people, because it softens you, that you know, it humbles you. And as a result, to earth, which I felt earth was my cheerleader to help me walk again, you know, or breathe again. I felt every tree was like, You can do it, you can do it. I mean, as I was walking again, I was like, If I could have this connection, then I want to contribute to helping people connect to their hearts, to each other and to the divine and earth in a new way. Mm -hmm. And Lord and behold, within literally two weeks, I get a call from a friend, a common friend of ours, Neil Goldman, who says, Zainab, I'm working on this platform. Would you like to be with me in it? And I was like, what? And Lord and behold, it's find center. It's a social platform that for anybody who is dealing with any challenges in life to find wisdom of all time in one place that is not advocating for this wisdom or this wisdom or this path or this path, but is saying here's a spectrum of all the solutions that are out there. All that has been written or said about your anxiety or about your worries or about your struggle whatever it is, and here are all the other people who are going through the same thing. So each one of us get to not only learn, but to get to have our own collection of the path we are walking on and what are we doing to heal Mm -hmm. and to to work on our self-development and growth. And so that's how it has become. My illness has led to this new chapter in my life.
1: Well, you said to me the other day, and I wrote it down, you said you have never felt more beautiful or happy since you turned 50 is what you said so what's all that about because 50's given a it has a bad rap right it has a really bad rap you know we get menopause and all of these things happen to us as a woman i feel the same way i have never felt so beautiful and powerful and sexy i feel exactly the same way and and lo and behold you do too I know a lot of women out there do not feel the same way. So why is that? What happened?
0: Oh, I don't know. Why wouldn't you not feel good about yourself? I tell you, I was just having my hot flashes as we were just talking in the conversation. And I was, but I love it. I I do. I mean, for me, it's 50 helped me arrive to my heart. I mean, maybe because also I got sick and in my, uh, just as I was turning, my new life happened as I was just turned 50 but also 50, I feel like I know who I am. Yeah, You know, I really mm-hmm. know who I am. I, I appreciate who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm actually grateful for who I am. Mm-hmm. And you've been there, done that, you try all the things. And right now, happiness for me, if happiness for me before was doing this and that, happiness for me, I have a rule for, I call it the seven rules for a happy day. Not happiness forever, because happiness is not a, you know, stays forever. What are they're, seven so things? Okay, they're so okay, simple, Kate. They're so simple. You know, drink me. a lot of water, honestly. Oh, yeah. Yep. Exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, go in nature, go for a walk in nature, hug mm-hmm. a tree or something. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Do something in the art. I restart tree teaching myself the piano, and after 30 nice. years of not touching it, eat healthy food, appointment with my heart. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't call it meditation. I call it appointment with my heart because in, there's an appointment, there's an obligation to fulfill the appointment, right? And then live my purpose. And at this moment, you know, when people say you're this or this, like, you know, I, I wrote a book. My last book was uh, Freedom as an Inside Job. It was all about my shadow and my light. So you get to 50 where you know what's good about you and you know what's not good. You know what's working and you know what's not working. And I learned to be compassionate to myself in my fifties and, Mm -hmm. and let my, and you know what, if I could make it to this woman that I am today at, at 52 and I am proud of myself, to be honest, like to, to make Mm -hmm. it and to celebrate life and to then allow life to be lived fully and not having to struggle to do this or that. But to like, I've been Mm -hmm. there, done that. I have my track record. I know who I am. I don't need to prove it to anybody. And it's okay to celebrate life and live it at the same time.
1: You know, you and I have so many parallels. And I believe that back in the day, let's say, you know, 10, 15 years ago when both of us were building organizations, we were on every panel known to man, we were giving every speech, we were in newspapers, we we drove ourselves for that acclaim. And what both of us have now realized is none of that actually matters. That's so true. What makes us the happiest is kindness. It's receiving kindness, it's giving kindness, it's compassion around the world, and it's not, you know, how many magazines can you be in? One thing you and I talked about the other day, and I think this is a very important topic, and it's one of the last that we'll have in this session, but we're going to have many more podcasts with you, is owning our sexuality and power. And, you know, whether you know it or not, you have it in spades, right? You are a sexual person. I am a sexual person. We have that power. What is that to you? What is your sexual power?
0: Well, I'll tell you a few things to try to like get me there. One is I told you my mom was a biologist and I grew up with my mom telling me, honey, sex is to be enjoyed and it's beautiful and it's pleasurable. And I was a kid when she told me that. So I had no idea what she's talking about. But Mm -hmm. I did ask her every time my parents lock their room in the middle of the afternoon and then they open it. I was like, did you have sex? And she's like, yes. And I was like, how was it, mama? Was it good? Now I'm asking my mom this (laughs) question without necessarily knowing what I'm talking about. But what it really helped me, and, and, and I came to learned that it was a gift my mom gave me because not every girl had this gift from her mom, right? That I always knew that I always knew sex is to be enjoyed and to be be freely and expressed freely and beautifully and all of that. So that always stayed in my background. And and until today, my mom is no longer with us, but I have brothers and we talk about sex all the time, like in a very Mm -hmm. free way, in a very celebratory way.
1: And why do you think that it's so taboo still for women to talk about pleasure? And are you willing to tell me about the gift that you gave your friend the other day?
0: Oh, my gosh, yes. So, you know, so that's one thing. The (laughs) second thing is I honestly met one of my colleagues, Manal Omar, who really did uh, impact me a lot. She was, you know, country director in Iraq and all of that. She wears a headscarf. She's a Muslim woman. And then she disappears and then she comes back and says, Zainab, she creates this thing called The Red Line, and it's all about women owning her sexuality as part of her full power. And I was Mm -hmm. like, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. She says, we're fighting for women to be at the negotiating table, except so many women make it, but they emulate men. And But we want them to show up as women. We don't want them to show up as men. And she's like, I said, I know that. I know what she's talking about. I see you now. And it goes, like, yes, we want women to show up as women, which yes. means we have breasts and vaginas and we like, we're sexy yes. and beautiful and all of that. Not to try to wear suits and pretend that we are men, right? So, so
1: hallelujah.
0: Inshallah. Right, Inshallah. <laughs> the, the third thing, honestly, in my meditation is sort of you start, I, it, it happened to me, happened, you know, is you tap into your sexual energy. And it's sexual energy doesn't mean it's only locked in one place. It is your chi is moving around your body, you know, it's just like you know how to bring it up and you're down and all of that. And I, it's a new thing for me. I was like, whoa, this is super cool to access this sort of life force. And I said, experimenting with it, Kate. So I would be walking in the street and if I drop this energy, you know, whatever, you know, people start looking at me and they're like, hey, you know, and I'm a shy person, believe it or not, in the street. Like I don't talk. I don't look at people. If I'm, you know, and I was like, this works. Like this is yeah. such an energy thing. You know, it's like going in an elevator and I was like, let me experiment. I dropped it. Nothing is changing. I'm just me. I'm just allowing my energy to move. And it's like suddenly... Conversation starts with people. I was like, "Wow, this some." So I then allowed myself to explore. What does that mean? And to Mm. explore it energetically, to explore it physically, to explore it spiritually, to explore it mentally. It's really to allow that and not to be ashamed of it. And it helped me to have a mother who told me honey that is is to be enjoyed right so here i am yeah. in my 50s understanding that's so beautiful so i i have a, i get invited to a friend of mine who's turning 61 and i give my all my girlfriends who are mostly in their 50s 60s and 70s my favorite mm-hmm. gift which is a vibrator a book on the sacred sexuality and tantric sex mm-hmm. and a Love lubricant it. you know and and it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how age and it doesn't matter whether my friends are married or not but i think it is part of a woman's power to explore her sexuality and i actually really think though of course having a companion of either sexes is wonderful But this exploration of sexuality is also an individual act. You know, so I I don't think we should be dependent on someone to show us our sexuality. We can find our sexual pleasure and our sexual power from within. You know, if anything, I'd rather find it from within and then and then explore it with other, you know, with my partner, but not necessarily depend on my partner to be the provider of that. So so it's beautiful and it's really impact, it sort of liberated me from all the inhibitions and the and the worries and the chains. And it was really funny when I gave it to her because she opened it in public and it's sort of the people <laughs> who like laughed and clapped and then her husband who loved it and between people who sh- who are shy. And here, yeah. this was in New York, right? And people's like, oh, don't, don't, open the box. And it's so funny. This, I mean, there's an inhibition about talking about sexuality that transcends culture, right? I'm in New York and this is this
1: uncomfort. That's crazy. So you can imagine what's going on in the rest of the world if this is in New York, one of the most liberated cities in the world. <laughs> it's true.
0: It's true. Oh, my God, if I give it back home. Now, I have to tell you something about Middle Eastern women, because there is this uh, there is all the things that we talked about, but there's also a naughtiness in Middle Eastern women. So I, uh, oh, my gosh. I mean, I... so the, one of the most popular saying that a mother sell to their daughters in the Middle East is, honey, wear sexy lingerie always. Yes. And because sexual pleasure and because again, remember I told you in, this, in the 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 origin of Islam sex is not a sin, it's a gift. And so the sexual pleasure, once they unleash all the baggage, cultural baggage of you have to keep your honor and virginity, once that is solved, and for some women (laughs) they solve it, the sexual pleasure and celebration of sexuality and sensuality, more important, is very, very, very much part of actually the culture of women-only culture. If you're invited to a women-only party, as as I grew up going to, they would wear their belly dancing outfits and they will all dance in sexual ways and all of these things. And it's sort of to celebrate and to exhibit that. Now they exhibit it with each other, right? And 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 now it's sort of an a... a Sort of in the women's domain and not necessarily in the men's domain. So that's the, the difference in here.
1: Well, I love, love, love all of this. And very sadly, we've come to the end of our podcast show. You are an absolute dream. Thank you very much for being on the show. Your up and coming podcast, Redefined, everyone, please look out for that. And If you would like to buy a sexual wellness kit that Zainab was talking about, please go to thebodyagency.com. It's under sexual wellness kit, because as you and I were saying the other day, my darling, one orgasm a day keeps the doctor away. (laughs) (laughs) I believe. I truly believe. (laughs) I, I I will love you and leave you and have you back on the show very
0: soon. Thank
1: you, my darling.
0: Looking forward. What a wonderful chat. Thank you so much, Kate. Love to be with you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body, and Soul. Remember, you can find all of my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. Be sure to sign up for our email list at thebodyagency.com for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotion code to get a 10% discount, PODCAST10. Thanks for listening.